Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, nice to be back on the podcast after one week off. And we got a nice guest uh, for this week as I had the opportunity to speak with American tennis player who's uh, been growing up the rankings the past couple of years in uh, Christopher Eubanks, who's also just a super nice and friendly guy. Yeah, I uh, felt bad that I missed out, but uh, had a listen just before we sat down to record and uh, really enjoyed the interview between the two of you. Super nice dude. And uh, just like his perspective, being someone who's sort of just outside the top 100, but has aspirations for more. And, uh, you know, just a a very great way of looking at the game with a lot of positivity and uh, the progress he's made, even though, you know, as he mentions in in the interview, and I don't want to spoil it here, but you don't always make the gains that you're hoping for. You don't always reach the targets that you might set out for yourself, but he seems to have the right mindset and, uh, you know, someone I'd like to see make that, that top hundred. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we'll get to plenty of other action on this podcast. Action from Doha with Andy Murray making a run. Daniil Medvedev getting back in the winner's circle. Another record from Novak Djokovic. And we'll touch on the women's side, a title from Barbara Krejcikova. But first, here's my interview with American Chris Eubanks. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, and happy to be joined by American tennis player Christopher Eubanks. Uh, Chris, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to to chat with us. No problem. No problem. The pleasure is all mine. Yeah, I know. We appreciate it. Um, I just want to talk about your progression in your career. You know, it, it feels like you've been achieving a lot of milestones of late. You recently made your career high ranking of 102. You won your first main draw match at, at the Australian Open. Do you set certain milestones maybe going into a season? And uh, what do you think has maybe allowed you to have your recent success uh, and these new milestones you've achieved? Uh, I, th- I think I used to early in my career. Uh, I think things were kind of coming along pretty quickly. So it was pretty easy to to want to set, you know, benchmarks or, or quantitative goals of saying I want to reach a certain ranking and hit a certain point. And then when you spend a few years not able to do it, it kind of uh, – Kind of, I think, changes your perspective a little bit. And I think in the past year, I've just kind of not focused as much on the the goals on a ranking. Of, yes, I wanted to get my first Grand Slam win. I was able to do that. But not trying to put so much pressure on myself to hit certain benchmarks and just kind of enjoying the progression. Because I, I even years, what am I, on year five, I, I even when my ranking kind of got a little stagnant, I still felt like I was a better player than I was the year before, but the results just weren't coming. And I think now it, it's just kind of embracing, like not focusing as much on certain benchmarks or goals and just kind of enjoying the process, which is like a very cliche saying, but it's just like enjoying getting up and training and working on the things and the areas of my game I need to get better. And then the wins just kind of start coming as a result of it. And then you, next thing you know, you look up and like you said, I'm sitting at 102. It's no secret that being top 100 as a tennis player is kind of like a big goal for everyone. So mm-hmm. you see that goal um, as kind of like the next the next step. But but I think that that's going to just come whenever it comes. And whenever it does come, obviously, I'll be thrilled. I'd love for it to come this week. I'd love for it to come very soon. But if it doesn't, I don't think it's going to it's going to wane on my confidence, like maybe not achieving certain things did certain years ago, I would say. Right. Uh, no, I, I love that perspective. Um, just talking about the process, I mean, the tennis season in itself is is so long. How do you sort of maybe structure when you're doing a training block, when you're more just focused on on getting wins at, at tournaments? Is it, is it something that, that takes maybe a couple of years to figure out how to manage 
you and your body in a schedule for a full tennis calendar. Yeah, I, I definitely think think it it does take a few years of you know trial and error and and you know fixing your schedule a certain way. Luckily, knock on wood, injuries haven't really been a problem for me. It's it's more of a mental fatigue, I would say, of kind of being on the road. I'd always said early in my career, you know, I couldn't do more than two or three weeks in a row. And I believe at the end of last year, I was on the road for post U.S. Open. I think I was on the road for about 10 consecutive weeks. Now, one of those weeks included of like, I think two of those weeks were technically off weeks, but just, I think I had to kind of find what works for me. And I think there's a, there's a time and place for everything. There's a time and place for saying, you know what, I'm going to play as much as I possibly can for the, you know, these next four to six weeks. And then there's times to say, Hey, I'm going to play here. I'm going to take maybe two or three weeks off to allow my body to rest, allow my mind to rest and kind of reset. And then, you know, getting back out there when I feel like I'm ready to compete. I think there's a time and place for it. Luckily, my body's been holding up. So I think I'm in this mode where I'm kind of enjoying playing consistently. I've played a lot more tennis over the past six to eight months than I've ever played probably in my entire life over that span and played a lot of matches. Mm -hmm. And luckily, my body's holding up. I feel pretty good about it. So I think, it, like you said, it, it does take a little bit of trial and error, a little bit of, of experience to kind of know, hey, I tried that, that didn't work, or even knowing what places and what tournaments you want to go to and you don't want to go to. So it's it's yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different, I think, facets to to pro tennis. Not just hitting balls. I do think scheduling and understanding your body is a pretty big pretty big part of it. Are right. are you the type to to get home sick? Like, are you always checking in with with mom and dad even even through the week if you're playing somewhere else or you're out of the country? Uh, not really, honestly. I'm kind of, I'm a bit of a I hate to say, a bit of a loner. So some, I have like <laughs> on tour and we talk and we hang out, but it, it's yeah. it's not really that big of a rush for me to get home. Um we don't have that much time to be home and you spend so much time on the road. I think I, I'm very like I get into a habit and I get into a routine. So it just becomes very normal. It becomes very normal to, you know, be in a hotel and, and have to go to restaurants and then you have a few off weeks, you know, maybe go home for a few days, but no, I, I wouldn't consider myself more of a, of a homesick. I just do think that off weeks are important just to reset the mind. It's not even necessarily about being at home. I have friends all over the country. I can sometimes if I can find practices and hits, I'll go to Los Angeles just to kind of take four or five days to train there, hang with friends, have a mental reset and go back on the road. So it's not necessarily drawing me closer to home. It's just, you just want to be able to say, all right, I don't want to compete this week. I need my mind to be able to rest. I need my body to be able to rest. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, we've seen such an incredible emergence of obviously successful uh, American tennis players coming through the college system, something you did going to, to Georgia Tech. And we're seeing guys like Ben Shelton, uh, Jensen Brooksby, Taylor Fritz put up just these incredible results. For, for you personally, maybe what, what was the biggest thing you took away from your college tennis experience? And how do you think maybe that's shaped you as a professional? I think time management is the biggest thing. I think being able to understand when you're uh, when you're a college athlete, you're obviously managing classes, you're managing tennis, you're managing the the little bit of social life you're able to have, maybe even study hall, other, other things, other interests you might have outside of that, trying to fit all of that through the course of 24 hours can be tough. I think the time management skills that I was able to kind of really own in, in college helped me when I got on tour because you go from having a full day being busy to saying, you know what, I'm training for four or five hours out of the day. What am I going to do with the rest of my time? You know, so it, it, I think it gave me the tools I needed to say, all right, I'm now a professional. This is when I'm going to train. This is when I'm going to go do physio. This was, and I can kind of stick to that schedule. Like I said, I'm big, big on routine. So if it's the same thing over and over again, I can kind of do that time after time. And I think 
the time management skills uh, in terms of off the court is one of the biggest takeaways. And on the court, I think it was just kind of playing a lot of matches. It allowed you to uh, – college tennis allowed me to find my game style. I've always kind of had a similar game style. But I think playing in college gave me the opportunity to play a lot, a lot of matches to really work out, understand the ins and outs of what I'm trying to do on the tennis court. I think a lot of players can just kind of go out there – you have their plan A and that's about it. But college tennis, you're able to play so many matches. You're able to get on the doubles court a lot. You're able just to have, you know, going into a spring, you know, I'm going to play a minimum of probably 20 some odd matches over the, this course mm -hmm. of the next three or four months. And Friday, Sunday, I'm going to be competing, you know, maybe postseason play, but you can count on getting as many matches, which is something you don't really get on tour. Uh, because if you're losing, you got to wait a whole nother week before you can play one match. So, I think just playing a lot of matches and just understanding time management were probably the biggest things. No, that's that's really good takeaways. Uh, one thing I love about college tennis is it, it feels like it it's a great ground for building rivalries. I love rivalries in sports, and uh, you know we're a Canadian podcast, and we've we've talked about wanting maybe a maybe a rivalry between Canadian and American tennis players because I feel like both countries have these great great talents, you know, within the top hundred and within the top ten even. Um, what do you think of maybe the Canadian contingency of players? I, I mean, we have some coming through the college system as well, and are you a guy who's big on rivalries as well in sport i love rivalries in sports absolutely love it i think it, it, it creates more entertainment it, it allow it kind of brings in i don't want to say drama but it brings in a certain element of of you know in, intrigue to any match when you're watching mm -hmm. two players who you know might not be fond of each other it makes you want to watch it a little bit more uh so i think it's great um hopefully it's all in good fun but but no i love i love rivalry i think like you said College tennis does a really good job of kind of getting those ju those juices going, but typically a lot of times when they leave the college ranks, the rivalry kind of leaves with them unless there's some bad blood still there. So um, it's very very different, very unique to uh, everybody else. But I love college tennis. I love the rivalry, like you said. I love how it can hopefully, like you say, it would be kind of cool to be able to see um, a little bit of of the the Canadian and U.S kind of going at it obviously canadians have had a very very good year last year again what was it atp cup and davis cup like the felix mm -hmm. Chapo have been doing a great job of really holding that mantle but i think the u.s has got some really good depth and it's excited to see even the college guys who are coming through uh, i'm sorry the canadians that are coming through the u.s college system it's re really really cool no, I appreciate the words. Just a couple more questions for you. Um, it, it is Black History Month. I wanted to ask you as a tennis professional, even growing up, um, did you have, you know, certain tennis idols from the black community who really inspire you? And maybe even today, someone who still inspires you as you're competing as a professional? Uh, yeah, I, I think growing up, Arthur Ashe is probably the, the biggest, biggest inspiration to a, a lot of black tennis players throughout the U.S., uh, just kind of being the first one to be able to kind of, you know, break that barrier and win Wimbledon, win the U.S. Open. Obviously, Arthur Ashe Stadium is named after him. So it's a pretty big honor anytime you're able to, to be able to hit some balls or play a match in there. Um, hopefully, I can know what that feels like. But um, outside of that, I think I was really lucky growing up in Atlanta because I had a lot of older black tennis players who had kind of paved the way for me to some degree. I had uh, Scoville Jenkins, who was one of the best uh, juniors in the U.S. coming out, won our national 18s once, maybe twice. I don't know exactly. And then came got up to about 180 on tour. A guy who probably my first role model ever is a guy named Jameer Jenkins, who got up also around the 180 mark and spent the last maybe four or five years uh, as Serena Williams' practice partner. 
Jameer was one of the best college players ever, leaving number one in the country, singles and doubles, uh, won a team event, won a doubles national championship, and lost to the finals of singles. So he's very, very decorated. He was probably the first person that I really could look up to and felt like I wanted to be like him. His older brother, Jermaine, coached me for a while and also provided me with a lot of good guidance and still does. And, of course, Donald Young, I spent a lot of time with him throughout my junior career from like 15 all the way up until 21, really. So he really took me under his wing. And I got to, I think, to him, to his credit, and I'm eternally grateful for it, for him for it. He allowed me to see what professional tennis was like and allowed me to see that it was actually a, like a possibility, which I think not many people have that opportunity to travel with a pro who's top 50 in the world, go to Morocco and Monte Carlo and Rome, Madrid, Nice, Paris, Wimbledon, all of these slams, the U.S. Open a couple times and being able to see it and go, hey, like, that's my friend. Like, we practice together on a regular basis. If he's doing it, maybe this is something that's attainable. Um, so, I mean, th those are the four. I have to, of course, mention James Blake. James Blake is always a guy that I can even go to now if I have any type of advice or need any type of advice or want to just talk through X's and O's and tennis. We talk pretty frequently. Um, but I, I think I have to kind of, you know, give all of those, those guys so much credit for what they've done. And there's so many others I could continue to name from Rodney Harmon to Mal Washington to players that kind of paved the way. But I think those were the, the really, really important ones, uh, in my life and in my career. And even to this day, I still talk to Jameer on a regular basis. I still go down to Florida to train with him because he still hits a really good ball. Uh, nice. so I'll go down to Florida and just say, Hey, can I come down for a few days? Stay with him. I'll talk to James a lot at tournaments and kind of talk through X's and O's of tennis. So, I mean, those are guys who I really, uh, really, really thankful for and been, you know, fortunate enough to develop a relationship with. No, that's, that's amazing. Very, very well said. Um, good luck this week, Chris. I, I really hope uh, we get to see you maybe this summer at the National Bank Open in Montreal. We'd love to see you out at that tournament competing uh, as well. Uh, uh, and join us over here in Canada too. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. I look forward to it. There you have it, my conversation with Christopher Eubanks. I, I can't help anytime I speak with a player who does come through the college tennis system. Like I always am inclined to ask them something about that experience, you know, whether what they took from it. Uh, for him, I, I found it interesting. And this is actually uh, the second time I've got this answer that he cited time management as the biggest thing he actually learned from his experience. So obviously, if you're becoming a tennis professional, is something that that's crucial. Yeah, that was one of the notes that I wrote down here, uh, just that time management really helped him and the fact that he feels as a professional tennis player, he's got more time now to mm -hmm. devote to his craft and sort of plan out how he's best to go about the improvements he needs versus in college where, you know, school, training, tennis matches, traveling, um, social life too. And um, so, yeah, I found that uh, to be really insightful. And um, look, there's something to be said for going that route. And I think if I had a kid, I mean, I've got three of them, but if they turn out to have any sort of talent for tennis, I, I don't think I'd hesitate to promote going that route um, in, in terms of getting your education and seeing that there's many of these players, both male and female. We've got several Canadians who've gone this route down in the mm -hmm. U.S. who end up having a professional career. It's not a hindrance. And I think especially in a sport where it could all end at, at a given moment, you never know an injury might you know potentially derail things for you to have that backup, to have that degree. And yeah, uh, an experience. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's, it's very important. There's, there's a lot of unknown when you're entering the professional tennis sphere. Uh, and Chris Eubanks was one of the most successful college players actually playing for Georgia Tech. He was, he was a phenom and a star. And, you know, we, you can look back in history at a lot of phenoms and stars who do amazing in college and, and maybe it doesn't work out for them professionally, but we have, you know, equally that same number of examples of players who just try and go the pro route doesn't work out maybe you suffer some career-ending injury and what are you left with so i i do trust in the college route and as you said a lot of canadians are, are taking that route as well right now i gotta say one more thing about college and that's uh, i apologize for my voice which sounds like i was at a college frat party last night <laughs> but uh, it was in fact an all-weekend uh, hockey tournament coaching my son down in buffalo and i just got nothing left here so i'm on fumes but i'm uh, don't get me wrong here listeners i'm uh I'm fully enthused about this week's <laughs> episode, and and look, I think it was great to have uh, Eubanks on, and especially given the fact, let's you know take a moment to just recognize it is Black History Month, and uh, you know, great to have members of the Black community on this podcast throughout the year. But I think also important to pause during the month of February and realize the influence that, and he spoke to many in his own life that encouraged him to get into tennis and encouraged him along the way, and and some of those names are names like um, you know Donald Young who. It's funny because I don't look at Donald Young as like a veteran presence, but boy, he's been around for some time. I remember him when he was like years old, 16 years old and and on the cusp of, of turning pro. And 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 he came across, you know, uh, being a professional tennis player at such a young age uh, at Jarmir Jenkins, you know, who I don't know all that much about, to be honest, but who many people know as Serena Williams uh, hitting partner. And uh, and boy, I think he'd be great to have on the podcast sometime. You can imagine some of the insight he, he'd have, not only from his college career um pro career um but also working with someone like the legendary serena williams my goodness um and then james blake who we mentioned i believe at the end who doesn't look up to james blake one of the all-time um, nicest guys on tour and someone that we've been fortunate enough to have on the podcast a couple of years ago as well when he was in toronto so you know really great guest um i i didn't know a ton about uh, eubanks beforehand but really enjoyed your interview with him i thought it was uh, it was really solid Thank you. Uh, yeah, it was great to learn a lot more about him. For him right now, he's competing uh, in Acapulco in the swing in Mexico. We'll get to the action over the past week or so, really two weeks as we missed last week, but starting uh, on the men's side in Doha. Uh, Danil Medvedev winning a second consecutive title as he won Rotterdam the previous week. But for me here, the big storyline is Andy Murray getting back to an ATP final and not just getting back to an ATP final, but I think the route that he took to get there when is winning just some absolutely astonishing matches. It started really uh, in his first couple matches, winning in three sets against uh, Sonigo 7-6 in the third, taking out Sasha Zverev in three sets in his second match. Another three-setter in the quarterfinals, and then the one people will particularly remember, semifinal match, uh, saving five match points against Yuri Lehechka, who just came off a quarterfinal run in Australia, so a player who's in great form, but Murray coming through with some more magic there before falling to Medvedev in the final. Um, I mean, you know, I think we've said a, a lot of these superlatives when we've talked about Andy Murray the past few years, but it, it never gets old seeing his will and drive to compete at this stage in his career and still have such incredible success. I think best of three, he can still have these runs and still have these moments. Um, I think he would probably maybe admit uh, that in best of five, it's a little more challenging to expect a, a run into the second week. But I mean, my goodness, when this guy finally retires, they got to come up with some sort of award for him on the ATP tour. You know, the hardest working son of a gun on the tour or something award yeah. because 
uh, just unreal um, work, drive, effort, uh, relentlessness. Um, it's just absolutely inspirational stuff that I think a lot of the younger guys could could look at him and say, holy smokes, this guy's doing it with a hip that's made out of metal. What's my excuse for not going out there and finding that never say die attitude? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, it's making for amusing punchlines of the fact that it seems like Murray can never play a straightforward match, right? He, he can never get like a tidy three and four win. He has to take his tennis fans through a long and stressful journey. We saw it at the Australian Open who, you know, for me, he played the most exciting matches of anybody in Melbourne. I mean, that victory over uh, Berrettini in five sets, the win over Kokonakis, just like electrifying atmosphere. And I, I know he's... We, we don't use the term big four so much anymore, but when we think of like the peak in tennis, when, you know, of course, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic were, were winning, Murray was such a big part of that, uh, which I think sometimes gets forgotten. Not, not just the three Grand Slam titles, but the success that he had at the ATP level, winning countless Masters 1000s, reaching world number one, which we know is so difficult to do in that era, and uh, the Olympic gold medals as well. He just such an illustrious career, and he's still competing at this level is is really admirable i think to players who i grew up watching like becker and edberg who won six slams apiece if memory serves correctly and i i feel like andy murray's three are worth six and then some there should be yeah. some sort of a a multiplying effect there uh exponentially worth more given they were captured during the era of djokovic uh federer and nadal and to a potentially lesser extent, Stan Wawrinka, who, you know, wasn't a number one or an Olympic gold medalist, although in doubles. But I, I think his three slams also should sort of be adjusted for inflation for sure. in some in some sense. And that's no disrespect to the guys of previous generations. But, you know, I, I don't have the numbers, but of the past 15 years, there there ain't many guys that have been able to hoist a major and certainly not more than one. Yeah, certainly. Uh, just to touch on quickly, Daniil Medvedev, not just this title here in, in Doha, but winning Rotterdam, which is the ATP 500, uh, even more challenging. I have to say, uh, still seeing a number seven next to his name in the rankings. I mean, he fell out of the top 10 even briefly. He's back to number seven. And that honestly feels wrong, the level he's back to playing. I think we know how incredibly talented he is on the hard courts. He's a U.S. Open champion that I, I have to think two consecutive titles on hard courts are going to give him that kind of boost of confidence to remember he's one of the very best players in the world. Yeah, getting the mojo back. And as we approach the Sunshine Double in Miami and Indian Wells, definitely putting himself back up there as a major contender. And, you know, I hear what you're saying, like the seven doesn't look right. I mean, it's obviously justified. And if he, mm -hmm. you know, wants to get back to the top three or what have you, then it's up to him to go out there and make it happen. But you know, just a reminder, I guess, that we don't ever really know what's going on behind the scenes, what causes a player to go into a funk. What is it that, you know, causes the confidence to disappear or go away or, or have a player not look, you know, as solid or, or look more vulnerable than they used to be? And I mean, it could be a host of things, you know, family things, um, just a crisis of confidence, whatever the case may be. Um, but I think certainly I would agree that it, it has been a little bit unusual not seeing him right up there. But then again, so many talented players right now on the ATP, which has certainly seemed to open up, you know, since the pandemic in terms of opportunities. Yeah. And a lot of different winners at ATP events. Just mentioned past couple of weeks for Felix Ocheliasim. He fell victim uh, twice in a row to Danil Medvedev losing 6-2, 6-4 in Rotterdam. And then in Doha, it was closer 6-4, 7-6, that tiebreaker 9-7. And Felix honestly looked 
rare to see him come off the court in a loss and genuinely look ticked off, but he looked very ticked off after he lost to Medvedev in Doha. And I think it's because he was in prime position to win that second set and he's still winless against Medvedev. It's Danil has his number completely. So I, I gather the frustration is building there. No shame in losing to a U.S. Open champion. But Medvedev is one of the few players on tour uh, that Felix is yet to solve that riddle. Uh, so if, if he gets another matchup with him, which I'm sure it's going to happen down the line, he has some work to do to solve that puzzle. Yeah, it's funny how certain players have your number. And, uh, you know, I think you wanted to sort of segue next into a little Novak Djokovic talk, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I'll let you take that in just a moment. But, you know, there's some players that, that have your number and the big three have the number of most people on tour. But then there's some people who have their number, right? And it's, uh, you know, style, attitude. You know, look at a guy like Nick Kyrgios who probably just gets under some people's skin and irritates the, the holy hell out of them. You know what I mean? So it's... Um, yeah, Felix is going to have to go back to the drawing board and and with his coaches. Hey, what what do we take from this? What can we do differently next time? And and sometimes I feel like I, I wonder if players do this, watching game film of players who have had like a Medvedev's number over the years. What what do they do different that that yeah. I could potentially put into place? No, definitely, uh, definitely look for look for patterns that have been successful for other players. If you have the skill set to implement that then maybe that's a strategy you take on. And uh, as we shift over to Novak Djokovic, world number one again this week, and that holds uh, remarkable significance. It's now 378 weeks total that he has spent at number one. That's not just the most for a men's player, that's most in tennis history, which is an extraordinary achievement surpassing Steffi Graf uh, in that facet. Uh, for me, I, I think I've said this before, out of all of Novak Djokovic's accomplishments on the tennis court, the 22 majors, winning all Masters 1000 events, twice so much success at the ATP Finals, Australian Open, etc. For me, the most uh, significant and greatest achievement is is this one. Unbelievable. And, and to surpass a player like Steffi Graf, who I don't know if like younger generations really get it. Like when I was growing up, I got it. Martina Navratilova, Chris Everett, um, Connors, McEnroe. I mean, some of the players that I didn't really grow up watching much of because they were at the tail end of their career or whatnot, but I still had a huge appreciation for what they accomplished. And, and Steffi Graf was right in my wheelhouse in terms of like, I watched her whole career. And uh, I don't know if the younger generation, like I, I don't say your generation, but like, get it you know or younger than you just how darn good she was so mm. you know for Novak to surpass her and now going to continue to add to that I'm sure um absolutely incredible I mean he's going to get to 400 weeks which is eight, eight years right there of being the number one player in the world and in an era of Federer and Nadal uh holy smokes that's uh that's some pretty intense stuff right there yeah, that's that's extraordinary. And I, I posed this question actually a couple of weeks ago uh, on Twitter of who are the top five challengers, maybe to Djokovic and his reign atop the the men's game, whether it's, you know, wrestling away that number one ranking or, or beating him in a big event. I left Nadal out of these top five just for the sake of he's injured right now. We know how great and historic that rivalry is, but I'm, I'm looking for other names and I'll give you my five. I had Alcaraz, Medvedev. Tsitsipas, Yannick Sinner, and I threw in Felix Auger-Aliassime as the fifth. Who maybe would your five be, do you think? My my number one is, is Yuri Vesely, who holds <laughs> a 2 two nothing. I love it. 
head to head over him with wins in 2016 in Monte Carlo and 2022 in Dubai. Uh, I'm just kidding, but you know, mm. I feel like he almost belongs there until he's beaten by Novak. Uh, Nick Kyrgios has got to go on there. He's okay. also two and what two and zero oh against uh, Novak. Although both those wins came back in 2017, I feel like Kyrgios is getting a little too chummy out there on social media with how much he loves Novak now, though. So I wonder if that's kind of deadened his killer instinct. I, I kind of liked his not liked, but the quote he had years ago was, "No matter how many majors Novak wins, he will never be the greatest to me." I played against him twice, and if he can't beat me, <laughs> you are not the greatest of all time. Yeah. I like right. that mentality in terms of that's the, the the mental edge you need when you're going up against a player like him. But mm. in all seriousness, um, I don't have five, but I mean, I would think younger guys like a Holger Runa, uh, like Yannick Sinner, who pushed him in five sets to five sets at Wimbledon last year yep. and played him awfully hard. Um, those younger guys who at some point you got to expect are going to have the tables turn in their favor. Uh, but I feel like, you know, his biggest obstacle really is himself physically, mentally, and father time, right? Like he can't go on forever. Although I don't think we're anywhere close to seeing anything that resembles a decline for Novak. No, it, it certainly doesn't look like it right now. And he's back this week, by the way, in Dubai, his first tournament since the Australian Open. I'll touch on Carlos Alcaraz, who was my top pick. He was playing the South American clay swing. Wins the titles and wins the title in Argentina at Buenos Aires, then uh, makes the finals of the Rio Open before losing to Cam Nori, who, by the way, is having a sneaky great season. So great title for him, taking home an ATP 500. Uh, great results from Carlos Alcaraz to sort of get right back into it after missing the Australian Open, dealing with injury. There was a couple concerns in that final as he wasn't moving particularly well in the third set, maybe a leg issue. But as of now, he's seated number one to play in Acapulco. As we're recording this, Denis Shapovalov survived a three-set match with Miomir Kekmanovic winning 7-5 in the third. I will have to say it was not a smooth or pretty victory by any stretch of the imagination. He probably should have won the first set, probably should have won this in straight sets, to be honest. Um, where are we at with Dennis right now? Because Dallas and Del Rey admittedly were a disaster. He went 0-2 in that you know United States swing at, at easier tournaments where you hope maybe he could make a run and, and be competing for a title. I'm going to try not to sound redundant here, but the results have kind of been redundant with Dennis. And um, I think it's going to take, you know, a real strong run somewhere to convince me, uh, you know, otherwise to the belief that something's wrong here and, and something needs to be addressed in terms of his, his game on court. And I don't know if it's the preparation in between tournaments. I don't know if it's a little bit more, you know, like Bianca Andrescu was big on the, the mental side of things and trying to, you know, uh, do all sorts of things from meditation and whatnot to, to feel her best when she steps out on the court. And, you know, maybe it's something like that that Dennis needs. Maybe it's new members to the team. Uh, again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think he really needs an established coach, um, someone that can offer a little more experience and expertise of having coached players of immense talent before. Um, and, and so right now, you know, me personally, Mike McIntyre speaking here, not for anyone else, but just myself. Um, yeah, I'm not feeling super confident about uh, what Dennis is bringing to the table right now. Yeah, it's it's definitely a bad stretch. Um, you know, he's he's had ugly stretches of losing in the past. And we referenced last year losing nine of 10 matches, getting a win to start in Dubai in Acapulco. Pardon me. Maybe that gets the train rolling in the right direction. That remains to be seen. Sometimes winning ugly can help you out sort of loosen you up from there so we'll have maybe to you see. should talk to brad gilbert his book was called <laughs> winning ugly ben right be there's an idea i that's think a that's pretty the high kind of, that's the yeah. kind of guy right there 
They pretty high profile coach, right? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine that the uh, coaching hire like that? Anyway, we'll, we'll see what transpires, I suppose, in Acapulco. And then I, I do think the, the sunshine double is going to be particularly important for him, but uh, remains to be seen still super early in the year. We're, we're just getting into March now. So a long ways to go for Dennis. If we shift over, just mentioning in Dubai, Djokovic returning as the number one seed. Felix is there as the fourth seed. If we shift over to the women's side, of course, Dubai has been played the WTA 1000 in the books and surprise winner. I will certainly say Barbara Krejcikova. Uh, taking home the title, defeating the world number one, Iga Shvantec, uh played just a flawless final, winning 6-4, 6-2. I think if you had watched in the lead-up of the tournament, the score lines, what Iga Shvantec was doing to the opposition, she had won the previous week in Doha without dropping a set. In fact, only dropped five games. She was absolutely dominating that I, I don't think anybody anticipated she could lose this event, but that's now twice um, in the past several months that Krychikova has been one of the very few players who has been able to stand up to Iga and beat her. Yeah, Krejcikova beat her on home soil in Czechia um, back in the fall at the Ostrava Open. Um, and, and now she's done it again. And there's not many players that have beaten Iga in back-to-back matches while she's been the world number one. So that's super impressive. Krejcikova is a player who, you know, we know of her pedigree and what she's been able to do both in doubles where she's won the last four doubles majors she's entered with her partner, Katerina Siniakova, but also in singles being a recent French Open winner. You know, things in singles haven't been as smooth for her of late, but she's been a player where a lot of people have been sort of buzzing about her since last summer saying she's looking good again. She's getting Mm. it back. And um, and so here it is finally clicking and in in what big fashion. And, you know, I really like this quote of hers after she beats Fiontech in the finals, which is when you play with Iga, you have to suffer. Otherwise, you're not going to win because she's everywhere. She plays great shots. She likes to play long rallies. So you have to suffer. And I don't mind that. And I thought, wow, what a great attitude to have that you're willing to go out there and 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 do it all. And I mean, when she got that last break of the match, that point that she played, which ended with the the lob over that Iga's lob. head that just yeah. landed on the baseline, had to go to review. That point was insane how she was hustling Krejcikova to get all those shots back and just wouldn't give up. And that's what you got to do. And few players are either able able, sorry, or willing to do that uh, to, to try and get a win against Ego. Yeah, look, she has a champion's mentality, which I love. And, and not just to mention, by the way, how well she played in the final. Uh, I mean, to me, this run of victories, this tournament is is one of the best you'll ever see. In fact, I think she's just the fifth player ever in WTA history to beat world number one, two, and three at the same tournament. And uh, despite maybe a routine win over Begu in the first round, everything was tough in terms of opponent after this. She beat Daria Kasakina in three sets in the second round, overcomes Kvitova in straight sets in the round of 16. Then she takes out our recent Australian Open champion, Sabalenka, in three sets, overwhelms Pagula 6-1-5-7-6 love leading into the final. So this was just a remarkable run of victories taking out um, all top 15 players apart from Begu and then world's number one, two, and three. And uh, Krejcikova now a single slam winner. I mean, you mentioned doubles pedigree and now adding a WT 1000 title to her name, which would be really her second biggest victory in singles. And I know we still have the sunshine double to go, but I have to think like she's going to be on the short list of contenders when the French Open rolls around if she's healthy. Uh, and she's one of the best pure ball strikers around. You know, maybe 
The only other name I would say who strikes the ball more purely, I think, is Naomi Osaka. Just, But she's so pure from the back of the court. And it's almost sneaky how quick she is around the court, how mobile and how, the way she moves. It's so impressive. And she's back up to number 16 in the singles rankings right now. Uh, still number two in doubles. But, you know, top 16, that's going to give you a better chance being seeded. Where, where yep. you're going to fall in terms of being a seed uh, at the slams. And she's got time to even improve on that, you know, over the next couple of months as Roland Garros is still more than two months away. Um, so, yeah, I just say great to have her back. I mean, look, she's one of 16, if my math is correct, one of 16 active uh, singles Grand Slam winners on the WTA, which, first of all, holy smokes, that's a lot of active Grand Slam winners, yeah. you know, as certainly in comparison with the men's tour. Um, but But she's one of them and she's someone that could certainly contend yet again. Yeah, certainly. Uh, just touching on the Canadians and how they fared over the last stretch of Bianca Andrescu. Uh, this is why we need to get her seated at these tournaments. Uh, drawing Elena Rybakina in the first round here in Dubai is is a brutal draw. I She didn't play a particularly clean match, and she had to if she was going to handle Elena, especially how well Rybakina serves. I, I think it's just going to apply that extra pressure. So she loses in straight sets. She did have a break in the second set, but couldn't, uh, couldn't salvage that. Uh, so Bianca, since Thailand, has dipped a little bit with that early loss to Putin Seva as well. Leila Annie Fernandez, if we get to her for a moment, I have to say for anybody who watched her match against Iga Sviantek, like it's it's astonishing to say I actually thought Leila played pretty well and still Despite lost. 6-1, 6-1, 6-1. I mean, Sviantek was that good, that overwhelming. Leila had a handful of games where, you know, she had a look at 15-30. She was up 30-love on the serve. I think a couple times had 15-40 on Iga's serve, and Iga just shut the door. And um, if we get to Sviantek in a moment, because I know she lost this final, but she's still, to me, such a dominant world number one. Some of these victories she posted uh, in Doha, beating Danielle Collins, Kudermatova, Pagula. Those are three great players. She lost five total games to them. And then beating Layla, as I said, 6-1, 6-1. I mean, these score lines are are ridiculous. They're obscene. And I, I think not only her movement around the court, it's one, way, it's one thing to move well on the tennis court. I find when you stretch her wide, side to side, not only can she get to the ball successfully, but she's returning the ball back with interest. She's taking your pace. She's replying with it deep. And that was what was really surprising and very difficult for Layla to manage that she would pull her side to side and the ball is coming back with interest. So it, it's almost, I don't want to make a Djokovic comparison, but when, if you see Novak moving at his best with court coverage, that's sort of what he's doing. And I think Iga is the best mover on the tour. And right now she's the best player in the world. I mean, I was absolutely stunned, I think, along with everyone else, that she didn't win that final the way she was coming in so hot. I mean, yep. she dropped only nine games prior to the finals and in the process set a record for the fewest number of games lost en route to a WTA 1000-level final, um, which is just pretty stunning. I mean, one of those matches was a walkover against Pliskova, of course, uh, but still incredible stuff. And then Coco Goff, who, if you go outside of Iga, you'd put Coco Goff in your next five, you know, contenders challengers for the top of the wta right now i feel like and and she beat her rather routinely um so again you know kudos to krejcikova for what she did absolutely unreal but also let's just say hey iga's run up until the finals was absolutely incredible and you know i'm a little bit thankful she lost that final personally speaking because in the tennis canada bracket challenge i did not pick iga to win and i feel like 
many people probably did. So <laughs> I, I started my week very strong in that. But you should check out the bracket challenge if you haven't, by the way, yes. Tennis Canada website. It's super fun. And it's for all the men's and women's 1000 level events this year. And I, I actually I got to brag about it because it's never going to happen again. But I was number one in the bracket challenge going into the semifinals and then the wheels fell off. But, you know, I, I took some risks early and you got to do that in these bracket challenges. If you play it safe, it's usually not going to work out because everybody else is also going to play it safe. So I got like Pliskova over Zachary. I took Keys over Garcia. Wow. And I did take I did take Krejcikova over Kasakina and Kvitova, but I didn't have her quite going obviously as far as she did. So yeah. I'm sitting just under 70th right now, which you know I'll take that for a start. Um, but I got to thank Inga, Iga for not winning because I feel like if she had won, then I would have been bypassed by probably hundreds. <laughs> No kidding. Uh, Ego was definitely the safe pick. That was the road I was going. And I certainly when you got by, got to the final and you watched the tennis that she had played, you would think the final was almost a formality. So as you said, credit to Krejcikova for that victory. Uh, just some women's tennis coming up this week. Uh, we have Rebecca Marino competing at the Monterey Open. This is a title uh, won by Leila Andrew Fernandez last year, the second title of her young career. Change of schedule this year, playing the two Middle East events. Um, so you know, different route for Layla, Annie Fernandez. I, I suppose it wasn't maybe as successful as she hoped. Uh, but when you run into Iga Spiontek second round, there's not much you can do. And I, I think there are a lot of positives for her to take going into the Sunshine Double that I actually think her tennis is on the right track. I, I wish we had seen Layla go to Mexico. I got to be honest, because she's had so much success there the past couple of seasons and has been embraced by the crowd there. They absolutely yes. love her. And uh, I don't know. I feel like at this point in time, I get it. Like you're a top 40 player and you want to be, you know, back into the top 30, top 20, what have you. But I feel like it wouldn't be a bad idea maybe to go back to a place where you've got good memories and, and try and have a good run there to get the confidence going yet again. Yeah. And uh, the challenge now for Layla is you take the hit from losing the points in Monterey because those points are falling off. So she's actually going to drop as of now, she'll drop 15 places back to 47 from uh, not returning to that event and having the opportunity to defend that title. But of course she'll be in action at Indian Wells. We'll watch for Rebecca Marino and Felix and Dennis. And we have another great episode next week. We should just, uh, quickly mention uh, the interview that we did already have with uh, Wimbledon finalists from 1996. Uh, Malave Washington uh, will be on our episode next week. Yeah, and he was uh, absolutely superb to have on the, the podcast, well, on the record for the podcast. The interview went longer than I thought it was going to go. The questions were so easy going. Uh, I could have talked to him for like three times that that amount of yeah. time. There was just so much to, to get into. And I don't know, just I came away from that interview just feeling like at peace with the world. He just had that kind <laughs> of effect on me, you know, the voice and the message. So yeah, mm -hmm. definitely encourage you to uh, check our next episode out with Malavia Washington. Uh, it's, a, it's a special one. Yeah, guys, thanks for listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.